want to get started, and I, I want to point out a, uh, a visitor we have, not a visitor, a new person here. Can everyone look in the center here to see baby Giovanni? And I just want to pause and thank God for this baby. Rick, just hold Giovanni up. In one of our life groups, we prayed multiple times for this child. So let's all bow our heads and pray. God, we thank you, God, that you bring life out of nothingness. You create where, where there is nothing. And we commit this child to you and pray that he would know you and walk in your kindness all the days of his life. We thank you for Giovanni. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Whoa! Lion King, right there. Hey, I got to ask you, how many of you, how many of you know that there's a championship game tomorrow? That is a disgruntled Buckeye fan right there. Now, seriously, raise your hand if you knew that. Okay, raise your hand if you're going to watch that. Like, Jim and I were talking about this. We fear that we do not have a sports church. We don't. So I, I want you to know what Proverbs, what Proverbs says about this. He who finds... An excellent wife finds a good thing. She who doth watch football with her husband is a blessing. So uh, my wife loves to watch football. Jim's wife, Allison, loves to watch football. This is an intervention for Steve and Don. I don't know if you guys love football, but we invite you to watch with us and no more of that feeling stuff here, okay? <laughs> like when the other team scores a touchdown, I don't want Steve, our licensed counselor, to look at me and ask me, what do I feel? <laughs> who's playing? Clemson. Who's rooting for Clemson? <laughs> who's rooting for LSU? I'm rooting for LSU, I think, only because I love Kerry Gotrell. So there you have it. This has nothing to do with our teaching, so let's press into that, okay? We're beginning a new teaching uh, here this morning, a new series, Galatians, Transformed by the Gospel of Freedom. And I'm really excited about this series, and I want to begin with a story. It's a story that many of you have not heard. It's the story of Mephibosheth. Say that three times fast, Mephibosheth. Those of you that are new parents, we have two couples that uh, are pregnant, and this name works real nice, actually. So, Sheth Sonnenberg, just consider it. And for the Fords, Meph, maybe not. Here's the story. Once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a man named David, and David grew up in a dysfunctional family. It was rumored that he was the result of adultery. That's what his dad may have thought. That's what his brothers may have thought. His dad did not love him. His brothers hated him. One day, David was outside keeping sheep 
when a holy man, a prophet, it's the Old Testament word, came and said to Jesse, the father, that you're, one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And so Jesse promptly paraded all of his sons in front of the prophet, the holy man, except for David. He thought so lowly of David, didn't even bring David in. And the prophet said, the future king of Israel is not before my eyes. And finally, David was invited in, and the prophet said, this is the future king. You would think after that point, dad would be proud, right? You would think that there would be a shift in the attitude of the brothers toward David, but that is not what happened. He was banished back outside to keeping sheep. David, however, had something going on between him and God that overcame his horrible upbringing, that overcame the feelings that he, of shame that he must have had because of his dad. There was something that was going on between God and him, which in a word is God's favor. In due time, the king, Saul, grew to hate David too. And so David's life was really horrible. I don't know what your upbringing was, what your, your past has been like. Maybe it's been hard. Maybe it's been hard for you to connect to God. But that was, that was David's life was really hard. Well, David met the son of the king, Saul, and they became friends. His name was Jonathan. And Jonathan looked at David one day and he said, you're going to be king. I know this, that you will one day be king. And David made a covenant that was unusual. He made a covenant with his friend Jonathan saying, when I become king, I will take care of your family. It was the tendency in those days that when a new king was enthroned that he would kill off the entire previous king family. He'd kill the king's wife, the king's sons, the king's daughters, their, their relatives, all of them and all of their servants so that no one could rise up to question the power of the new king. But something had been going on between David and his God, and so that's not how this story played out. One day, Saul and his son Jonathan were both killed in battle, and David, as the prophet had said, became king. Saul's family did not know the heart of David, and so the nurse of young Mephibosheth ran for her life, as did the rest of the family, and the nurse fell, dropping the small child, breaking his legs. So Mephibosheth was brought up lame. Lame in a city called Lodabar, which means place of shame. So Mephibosheth also had a rough upbringing, having a wicked king father, Saul, and having no way to encounter this great God that we serve. One day, David calls one of his servants in front of him. The servant's name was Ziba. Ziba was a servant. I'm going to serve, going to serve whoever's king, but Ziba had not yet bought into David's heart. He didn't know the nature of David. 
And so David said, is there anyone left from Saul's house that I can show the kindness of God to? I want you to just let that question sink into your heart for a minute. He was a man of power, a man of affluence and influence. And in that moment, what was in David's mind is, how can I show some other human being the kindness that God has shown me? And Ziba, now understanding the heart of the king, said, there is somebody, Mephibosheth. So David sent Ziba to go get Mephibosheth. And he brought him. We don't know. The Old Testament does not record it with images. So we don't know what this was like. Was Ziba carrying lame Mephibosheth into the king's presence? He was brought into the king's presence expecting execution. And instead, King David said, because of the covenant that I have made, because of the love that I've experienced, I will give you land, I will give you money, and from this point on, you will dine with me here at the king's table like one of my sons. The meaning of this story as it relates to us as we begin to talk about grace is that we are all Mephibosheth. We have all experienced, we are, we've all been crippled. We are all lame as a result of what is called by theologians the fall of man. Human beings deciding to live without God, being brought up, many of us in dysfunctional homes, many of us having done things that we would say low de bar, it's a place of shame, and yet there's a covenant that has been made to show kindness to you and me, to eat at the king's table and experience the goodness of our God from this day forward. What David experienced from God in, in a word is the word grace. But I want you to see what this looks like in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's pronounced chen. Let's all say it together. Chen. You have to get that in there. It means to bend or stoop down in kindness to show favor. Do you know how many times this word grace is found in the Old Testament? Six. Only six times. And so in the times of the Old Testament, the heart of God was somewhat left in the shadows. It was not fully revealed until the coming of the Christ and into a dark world that did not know mercy, that did not know favor, that did not know loving kindness, Jesus Christ came. And here is how his first follower described his coming in John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received 
grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. As you look at the life of Jesus, you could summarize it all in one word, grace. There has been no one like him who would reach out to the untouchables and touch them. People that longed for community, he looked at and called daughter. People who were the last person you would ever think of would be forgiven, and he offered forgiveness. Even the hardened atheist looks at the life of Jesus and sees something remarkable. And in a word, it is grace. But then we come to his death, and it's as if the music grows louder and louder in a mighty crescendo as Jesus dies on a bloody cross. Because here, the followers of Jesus understood grace in an entirely deeper way. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, who had never sinned. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. No person in this room will ever attain to that through your behavior. This is a gift. God grants us grace, making us righteous with God, setting our hearts free in a way that is most to transform us. And if you can bear with me with this word, so that we would be lit. Not in the way our culture uses that word, but that we would be lit. Lights shining in a dark world wherever we go. So we have the life of Christ that manifests grace. And we all say yes. We have the death of Jesus. But then it's like the writers of the New Testament, their minds are blown as they think about the cross because they realize something. They realize that the cross manifests the heart of God, a heart of grace, so that God's heart, which has been hidden, becomes clear and we can look at it and we can understand how it affects every area of our life. That we can be saved completely, fully forgiven, loved as God's children, empowered at all times, and in a state of favor. Do not miss this. Grace is a state of favor. Today, if you are a Christian, you are in a state of grace. If you are doing well, if you are on top of the world, you're in a state of grace. If you are not doing well, if you are struggling, you are in a state of grace. It is a constant rain. It never changes. It never diminishes. It is a fountain that keeps pouring out more and more help, mercy, love, and power constantly. And we'll spend the rest of our lives wrapping our mind around this constant fountain of grace that we are in. 
The Greek word is this. It's the word, word hottes. Say it with me. Hottes. All right. And it's interesting that the Old Testament uses the word grace six times and the New Testament 159 times. It's all the apostle Paul can write about. Line after line, grace, grace, grace. It is the heart of Christianity. It is what distinguishes Christianity from every man-made religion. It is a concept, a reality that was bought with blood and it's what we walk in all the time. Here's the main point that I want you to hear with ears that are opened. Grace is probably the greatest word in the scriptures. And there's a lot of competition for that number one spot. It is the number one word, even greater than love, which we know is what life is all about. Grace is a word that is even greater than love because grace is love in action. It is the heart of God moving on us and in us and through us. Or if I could put it differently, God loves me in this moment with the same passion, the same delight, the same self-sacrifice that was shown in the moment that Jesus died. God is unchanging. His passion for you today is the same. This helps me so much because I get lost and I forget where I am. Maybe it's because of a bill that needed to get paid. Maybe I just am in a mood. But it helps me to just remember, and this is the question I ask. And if you're taking notes, please write this down. The question that I ask, God, where am I? Where am I? And I remind myself, I am in a state of grace. Today, at this moment, every moment, I am under this constant flow of kindness and love and power accessible to me if I just trust in this moment. Okay, we have a video that I think, honestly, unpacks the meaning of grace better than I do. And so I want to share it with you. I consider myself an expert on the subject of grace. Not because I understand it better than anyone else. In fact, most times I'm left completely clueless as to what grace actually is. I just know it when I see it. And I know it when I experience it because frankly, I've needed a lot of it in my life. So I guess I'm not an expert, just I have a lot of practice. But even with all the years of messing up and needing what Christians call God's grace, I'm still left struggling with the most basic of questions. What is grace? You see, I think way too often we in the church overcomplicate something that at its purest form could not be more simple. You see, grace is gained righteousness at Christ's expense. Meaning that with Jesus' death on the cross, he purchased for us a right relationship with God that we could not earn for ourselves. Because grace is received and can't be earned. And once this gift is realized, 
it adequately covers everything, meaning every debt is canceled, every single sin, past, present, and future. So get ready and come expectantly because grace is a growing revolution and carnal execution, meaning that as we leave the flesh behind and as we die more and more to ourselves, we are stepping into a movement that continues to change the world by giving redemption and communion to everyone. God is granting rest after condemnation ends because a gap has been realized and connected entirely. A bridge has been built, the battle has been won, and God reigns and Christ is exalted. Amen is right. Preach. That got me fired up. I would love to tell someone about Jesus after watching that. If you don't know Jesus, I'd love to sit down with you and talk with you about that. There's some real deep theology in that, and, and it's on our app. I thought so highly of the, the content of what he just shared that I wrote that out for you. And so I hope that you go to our app, look at the notes, and, and think through those things. I, I want to speak to you about attraction for a minute. Like I, I, I said, that each one of us, when we come to Christ, we're attracted by something. That attractive thing in the life and the death of Jesus is grace. But also, if you're a Christian, you are attracted to something else. It's very likely that you are attracted to a Christian. Now, I don't mean in a missionary dating sort of way, like my mom did with my dad. Um, my dad was not a Christian, and they got married, and he eventually came to Christ, which I'm very grateful for. No, I mean that, that when a Christian becomes lit, when a Christian begins to understand not grace not as a theological concept, like a doctrine to put in my back pocket, but like when you understand grace at an emotional level, you become the sort of human being that is not only flourishing and overflowing, but people see that, and it's attractive. And they come to church and ultimately to Christ because some Christian begins to understand what God has done for them. Do you track with me on that? That's what our goal is. So to orient you to this series, next week we're going to begin to dig into Galatians. I think I'm going to look at one verse here today, and that's it. Today is just a beginning point. It's an orientation where my hope for you is that you would get a vision for grace. I, my hope is that you would get a vision for what you could become because of what's been done for you. And I want to admit, it, it's a long road. It's a long road from first encountering God's grace to becoming a person that is overflowing. And we have pushed back to that. We all have pushed back because how can God delight in me in me when my father did not. We have pushback of guilt and shame. How can God be this way toward me because I'm still struggling? I'm still committing sin. How can this be true? We will all push back because grace requires that we step up and we step out and we live in this thing called freedom that we will unpack. So let me ask you this. What is your pushback to God's grace? What a great question for us to consider. What is my pushback? Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. 
God is able. I want you to think about your own life, your own struggles, the way you feel about yourself, the way you think, the degree of overflow that you have. God is able. He's able to do this. He's able to make how much grace? All grace. Isn't that ridiculous? The reason Paul could say this is that is what Paul experienced. He went from being the worst sinner to the greatest saint, and so he says on the authority of what the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to say, hey, listen, God can do this. I know you're pushing back. I know you're resisting this. That's why he's writing this way. God is able to make all grace abound. Look at those next two words to you. I want you to let that, receive that, receive that, that this is inspired, that this was not written to me, that this was not written to other pastors only, that this is written to you. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, all sufficiency, all I need. This is a life lesson that is so hard for us to get, to be able to say, I have all I need for any moment that life brings my way because I'm in a state of grace. All sufficiency in all things at all times. So let's not think about grace just theologically. Let's think about grace and marriage. Let's think about grace and work and the boss who rubs you the wrong way. Let's think about grace and kids that are difficult. Let's think about grace and finances and exams and all of the stuff that comes our way and God says, I got all you need for all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. I wanna show you an image uh, of my wife here. Uh, we went to Costa Rica. God is moving in my heart, in my wife's heart in very cool ways. And in Costa Rica, this was kind of, there's a lot more going on here than just this image. Behind and underneath the image is this willingness to receive God's grace to stop making excuses and justification to say, okay, I want to receive what you say about me at a heart level. But I thought about showing an image of my wife wearing a bathing suit every week, and I thought maybe not. So I came up with a new image, a second image. And this image is different. And I showed this to my wife, and she said, actually, these two images together capture grace. We need to receive God's grace, which is her in Costa Rica, but then we celebrate God's grace. And until it gets to our emotions, until God's grace gets into how we feel and our emotions, we're not yet tapping into what it is all about. Some of you here today are like David. Your heart gets it. 
and you say, who can I show the kindness of God to? God bless you for the grace he's already given you to be like that, man. Some of you are like Zeba and your servants, and yet you're not fully bought in on the heart of the king. And if you can be one on this point, you will be bringing Mephibosheth into the king's presence. And some of you are Mephibosheth, where you realize you've been invited, but there's some discomfort in you where you've not yet come to the king's table to let grace minister to your heart and to eat and be fed and be nourished by grace. Which brings us to a second main point. Since grace is love in action, therefore the question becomes, how does this affect that? How does the cross affect marriage, children, identity, emotion? Application is everything. And so I beg you not to listen to this sermon and just take notes. My goal is bigger than that. My goal in the remaining 10 minutes that I have is for you to get a vision, for you to write out a vision, which maybe becomes a prayer to God. Would you, by grace, do this in my life? Would you connect the dots from the cross of Jesus to how I feel about myself? We are raising a very high bar of expectation for what we trust the Holy Spirit will do. Is everyone with me? So I want to share 10 points. Yes, in 10 minutes. I will only be touching on them. I want to share what grace has meant to me. I was journaling about this the other day. How has grace affected me? And I realized, like Paul realized, that I didn't bring a lot to the table, that I am who I am by grace in all of these other areas. And so I want to share with you 10 ways in which grace has affected me and can affect us. Number one, grace can save us and bring us to the Father's table. If you've not understood grace with clarity enough that you can say, I know God personally, that is your first step. And for me, I didn't exactly jump at that. Somebody invited me. And I'm like, not interested, thank you. Yeah, but I'd still like you to come. Not interested. I, I understand you're not interested, but I'd like you to come. And they wouldn't leave me alone. And the reason they would not leave me alone was they knew something, someone, and they wanted desperately for me to know that. And in time, it began to soften my heart. It began to make me thirsty and hungry. How, do, how is it that someone that is mildly interested in God because, becomes someone that is hungry for God? And the answer is, is grace. But I want you to notice the second half of this. 
again, we are invited to the Father's table, and some of you, Christians, are not sitting there. And you know it. Whatever your hang-up is, can you imagine, can you imagine yourself being a person that feels welcomed and wanted by God? Can you imagine praying to a God that delights to hear your voice, who loves you and enjoys you? You're invited to the Father's table. Grace has taught me that. There's a second thing. Grace can decrease the power of guilt and shame in our lives. I had committed more than my share of sin before I became a Christian. I committed more than my share of sin after I became a Christian. And I happened to be in a church that taught on grace for 10 consecutive weeks. And after a while, I began to believe that maybe there was enough for me. And guilt is not the same as shame. Guilt is feeling bad about what we've done. Shame is feeling bad about what we are. And for me, hearing grace over and over and over again, being confronted with scripture, began to take my heart and just loosen the knot. I hope that you have a vision for getting free of guilt and free from shame. There's a third thing that grace can do. Grace can enable, can enable us to be human beings, not human doings. How many fellow human doings are here? Those of you that raise your hand know you're so driven. And the difficulty with that, with me confessing that I actually love work, how weird is that? is that there is carryover into Christianity, that when you come to Christ, you're overwhelmed by the love of God, and then you go back to doing. And you think in your heart, if I just do more for God, then maybe he'll like me. And you keep striving after getting an A when God has already granted it. And so what grace does is when you realize that I'm in a state of grace, that how I do today is not going to earn a smile on the Father's face that he already has. It takes a lifetime to learn this, but how great is it to become a human being and stop being a human doing? There is a fourth thing. Grace can, can ignite our hearts with a mission to reach people for Jesus I have a pet peeve about Christians that talk much of grace and feel uncomfortable being around unchurched people. The heart of Jesus shows us the love of God aflame for a lost world. God pursuing people that are not pursuing him. And let me just say, until grace extends that deeply into your heart, that you begin to look at people that don't know God and something happens in your heartbeat. Until that happens, you don't really understand what we mean by grace. God's grace can do that. It, it can ignite a passion, a mission within us. The fifth thing is this. 
grace can empower us to access joy when our hearts are a hot mess. Our hearts are a hot mess at times, right? And how blessed is it for me, like I've alluded to, to walk out into my backyard and say, where am I today as I'm angry, as I'm struggling in my heart, as I want to justify myself, I want to be right and for God to remind me, you're in a state of grace. I love you. My favor is upon you. And to be able, through faith, to go from being angry into being joyful just by remembering the gospel. How cool is that? You can become that person. You can become a person who learns how to handle your emotions under the cross of Jesus. Sixth, grace, not self-effort, can motivate us to battle against our sin struggles. For much of my Christian life, I have fought against sin. If only I can try harder and exert more effort until I became awake and realized that I have no power in myself at all. I have no goodness at all. And then I surrendered to the teaching of grace and found my progress in holiness happened rather naturally. So I want you to think about that sin struggle that you don't want to name, that you don't want to say out loud because we all have it and God's grace can help you in that battle. Number seven, Grace can protect us from perhaps the most dangerous of temptations. This is no exaggeration, bitterness. Many are they that began to follow Jesus only to lay Jesus aside at some point in their journey. Only to let something take root in their heart, some anger, some frustration because the world is broken, because my marriage is broken, because my kids are broken, because my world is broken. I'm so angry. And here specifically, the cross has helped protect my heart because I realize if you loved me in my ugliest state, then I can let go of my bitterness toward that person who has failed me. And right now, as you hear these words in the presence of the Holy Spirit, if you have bitterness in your heart, don't leave this place before yielding it to the God of grace, that you could receive grace and help. Eighth, grace can enable us to access spiritual power to change. Grace is not just forgiveness. It is not just acceptance. It is not just love. It is power. And people of grace, as they learn how to live a spirit-filled life and tap into God, become motivated and energized and empowered. And suddenly they're making progress. And I don't understand why. Why am I growing? I don't get it. What is going on with me? I'm experiencing grace. And grace is power. It's all about power. Number nine, grace can save our marriages and families. And I tell you what, I've been to a lot of seminars on marriage, and I've battled hard for mine, and we're happily married coming up on 31 years on Tuesday. 
And there is one thing being a simple man that I have done. I go back to Ephesians 5, which tells me what I am to do as a husband. And it is to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And the question is really very simple. Jesus died for me and he says, can you just love like I loved? Because if you can, then your marriage gets healed. And that is all I have tried to do. I've just tried to love. And so grace poured out on the cross of Jesus is so practical and helpful for any relationship. Lastly, number 10, grace can invite us to love when someone is unlovely. This beautiful moment when you have someone in your life that has experienced ungrace all of their life and you begin to love on them and you know they're confused. It's like, what are you doing? I don't understand. I actually gossiped about you to my friend the other day. I am like being a pain in your butt and you are loving me. I don't understand you. What is this all about? And you know that what you're experiencing as a human being is the love of Christ in action. It's God's grace fueling us to love the unlovely, which in one sense we all We're going to look at one verse in Galatians. It's like the Apostle Paul takes the whole idea of grace and he just blows it up. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. He is not writing of Christ's crucifixion. He's saying that when Jesus died on the cross, something happened to me too. I was crucified with Jesus. I was crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. I'm not living out of my own power, out of my own energy, for my own agenda anymore, because grace was given to me. Because of that, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's one thing for us to say, somebody died for us. And it's another thing to understand grace is not only did someone die for us, that someone wants to live his life, his life through you. That's what grace does. Grace invites us to this beautiful adventure of a spirit-filled life of encountering people that need love and need to, lo to know God. And grace has invited us into this. I want to point out on the notes that there's a Bible project video on the book of Galatians which would be good for you to watch. There on the app, you can find your way to, to that. I've also written some reflection questions for you to ponder before next week. But I want to remind you as we move into worship, I want to remind you that God has a vision. God has a vision for you, for grace saturating you, for you being transformed over the next 10 weeks, for you laying hold of something that you've not laid hold of yet, of you being changed and renewed and becoming a new person. And God can do that. Why? Because God is able to make all grace abound to you. So stand with us here. 
Father God, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks that you are not a God of judgment. You are not a God of condemnation. You're a God of grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the inspired scriptures. We thank you for the people of of God who surround us. May we be so filled with grace that our own lives would drip grace. That our identity of who we are would be informed by grace. We stand in awe of you. We worship the God who gave himself and we invite the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and into our minds and into our hands and our feet and every part of our being. May grace win the day in the name of Jesus.